what we want to do is we want to give patients and clinicians and everybody hope and awareness that there is another way of doing this. There is a better way to treat pain, to effectively reduce um, opioid use and improve function all at the same time. And that's targeted pain treatment. So we're very glad to have that opportunity. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning into the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 156 of Anesthesia Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Stephanie Vanterpool. Dr. Vanterpool is an anesthesia-trained interventional pain physician who also did a pain fellowship at Wake Forest. She did an MBA at Duke. She has a great sort of wide-ranging perspective, I think, on pain management, education in pain. Really excited to have her today to talk about her experience. Dr. Vanterpool, welcome. Thank you so much. appreciate the invitation. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your current role at UT? So at UT, I am the Director of Comprehensive Pain Services, which means that I am the Medical Director for our Comprehensive Pain Center, but I do a lot in terms of education and advocacy work within the institution and the state. So part of my passion is to really educate on uh, creating a paradigm shift in how pain is assessed and treated, meaning taking us from the concept of just looking at pain scores and really focusing on treating the patient and improving their function. So in that role as an assistant professor of anesthesiology, I actually do a lot of teaching and we have a fellowship, we teach residents, but I do a lot of speaking throughout the institution and then implementing and um, extending programs throughout the institution and the state. When you're doing education, is that primarily towards clinicians or is that sort of to the the every man out there, the t- your everyday you know, Tennessee. It's interesting that you asked that question. So in my role as an uh, assistant professor within the anesthesia department, it is residents and fellows, but we also do a lot of education when it comes to speaking within the, within the medical center community. We do, I do a lot of outreach um, and education there. We have an annual targeted pain treatment conference that we host. We're coming up on our fifth year next year, March 31st, which is really a, really a milestone for us. And that's really geared towards or primary care clinicians, but also pain specialists who are interested in making sure that they have a good handle on the bread and butter assessment process and thought process behind figuring out what's causing pain and improving function in a way that helps our patients get back their quality of life. I do a lot also with the state. So I'm the past president of the Tennessee Pain Society, currently on the board of directors for the North American Neuromodulation Society. And I lead several initiatives there, including leading the D- Diversity and Outreach Committee for NANS. And so with that, The education that we offer is really geared not just to clinicians, but also outreach to patients. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. I have an exciting project coming up I'd love to talk about, which is patient-specific outreach. But I really have been privileged to be able to share what I've learned over the course of my journey with um, both my colleagues, my coworkers. We work with some amazing APPs or referring providers, patients, everybody. Talk a little bit about the landscape in terms of like what's going on with opioids right now in your neck of the woods? Sure. So within the state of Tennessee, we have been making really, really tremendous strides in terms of addressing the opioid crisis, both in terms of reducing the number of prescribed opioids and realistically in raising awareness. So a few years ago, as a member of the, uh, I was appointed to the governor's commission on pain and addiction medicine education. And within that commission, 
we were charged with identifying core tenets or core principles that we would use to educate all healthcare clinicians within the state of Tennessee about pain and addiction management. Within my service within a commission, we were able to incorporate the tenets of targeted pain treatment into that document, which was adopted by all of the healthcare institutions in the state that agreed that this is something they were going to teach or a curriculum they were going to apply to their, to their students. Most recently, I've been appointed to the Tennessee Opioid Abatement Council. So that's a council that was set in place by uh, the governor and the leadership of the state to really oversee the allocation of funds that have been dispersed to Tennessee from the various opioid settlements nationally. So I'm one of, I believe, 15 appointed members across the state to the Tennessee Opioid Abatement Council. And that council is made up of some really dedicated, amazing people that are committed to seeing the people of the state of Tennessee benefit and, and, and overcome the challenges that we've been facing with both the overprescribing of opioids, the availability of illicit opioids on the street, and also very importantly to me, making sure that we're not just limiting opioids without appropriately providing other sources or, or opportunities to treat chronic pain. I'm curious what the kind of legislative landscape is, because I know there's sort of the national conversation and then there's the state-specific conversations, and often legislators are saying, we need to take matters into our own hands in order to combat the opioid crisis. And I've found in some cases, based on some of the things that I've seen, that they're they're going pretty far down the path of kind of telling doctors what they can and can't do in this in this particular area of pain management. I'm curious what your experience of that has been and what is it like in Tennessee right now? In my involvement with, uh, my involvement with legislators has been really through my involvement with the Tennessee Pain Society, the Tennessee Medical Association, and now these different councils that I'm serving on, most recently the Tennessee Opioid Basin Council. We're not directly as much interacting with the legislators as we are advocating for our patients and our practitioners within the state. So within that realm, we will may have conversations with various legislators to educate about what it is that our patients are facing, what it is that our physicians are facing in the state. But really, I find my role not so much one of, I find, let me rephrase, I find my role to be one of education and advocacy. And I think the broader we can make, the broader we can reach with our awareness mission of raising awareness about chronic pain, appropriate use of opioids, alternatives to opioid use, targeted pain treatment, et cetera, the better we can do in terms of getting our patients access to that care, whether it be through the legislators, through the insurers, through the other clinicians that need to be aware of these therapies that we offer, et cetera. In those discussions that you've had when you've had an opportunity as a member of these councils to get in the same room as some of your local Congress people and share with them your perspectives. Have you found that they kind of, they get it in terms of the drivers of the challenges that are being faced and, and the, the ways that you think are best to address it? Or is, do you find that you're like one of maybe you leave and then somebody else comes in that room behind you and there's perhaps different perspectives that are, there's a little bit of a tug of war going on. You know, I will say that I haven't yet been in that particular type of situation where we're kind of one-on-one with the legislators in like a PAC type of situation. But what I will say is the legislators, the leadership, these are people who are dedicating to solving the problem and solving the problem the right way. It is not how do we make sure we're no longer number XYZ on the opioid prescribing list, but it's more about how can we make sure that we're serving the people of Tennessee and getting them what they need? And so I'm very proud to be part of these organizations. I'm very proud to be a part of the University of Tennessee Medical Center because I believe we have our commitment in the right place and we are putting 
our efforts where we have said we are committed to doing things. And so I think when it comes to communicating the story or the the effects that we're trying to, what we're trying to affect for our patients, I really think it actually is more more functional or more uh, more of an imperative when we can actually share real life stories. So I have hundreds of patient stories that I can share, which actually put a face to a situation. So it's no longer a number. It's no longer we need to decrease opioid prescriptions by 40%. It is, we need to find a way to help Miss Mary, who's 75 years old and can't get out of her kitchen to be able to go walk again with her family. And once we are highlighted in those real life ways, we're like, I have a grandma who sounds kind of like that, or I have an aunt or a cousin or a nurse or something along those lines, uh, or a friend, that's where you get that, that connection and that resonation. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because the way that you learn scientifically is through trial and error and white papers and advancing science. And the way that you move the needle with people emotionally is to tell them about Miss Mary down the street. Exactly. They're they're both both necessary. You you highlight that because, because everybody has been touched by this opioid crisis and the pain epidemic. Everybody knows somebody who has either suffered with chronic pain, who has been affected by opioids in some way, whether it is a dependence, addiction, having the opioids taken away and not having something to replace it so they see their function dramatically decline. And so what we want to do is we want to give patients and clinicians and everybody hope and awareness that there's another way of doing this. There is a better way to treat pain to effectively reduce um, opioid use and improve function all at the same time. And that's targeted pain treatment. So we're very glad to have that opportunity. I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal journey and kind of your story of getting into medicine and then into pain management. So when did you start thinking about you wanted to be a doctor? So I actually grew up in the British Virgin Islands. That's where I'm from. And my dad is a physician, Dr. Hesketh Vanterpool in the British Virgin Islands. So I grew up around medicine and I knew from a very small age that I wanted to be a physician. So of course, what does every child want to be? They want to be a pediatrician because that's who they see, right? And, you know, I took a small stint when I thought that I wanted to do architecture, but then I got bored doing AutoCAD when I was doing like job training in high school. So I went back to saying, okay, never mind, I want to be a doctor again. And then when I left, when I left the Virgin Islands to go to college, I went to Baylor University and I knew that medicine was what I wanted. I took the required courses, but interestingly, I got some of the best advice that I, and I give this advice to this day in terms of when undergrad students come to me, I tell them major in something you'd be happy doing if you don't go straight to medical school. That was, a, that was the advice that I got from one of my counselors. And I immediately changed my major from biology to business because I loved business. So I actually have my undergrad in business administration, even though I did all of my pre-med. And that's kind of where my interest in business kind of started. And you'll, you'll hear how that continued on later on, right? So then went to medical school after working for a little bit between college and, and, and medical school. And then once I got to Duke University for medical school, it was such an amazing experience. I am so grateful for Dr. Brenda Armstrong, who's no longer with us, may she rest in peace, but she was our Dean of Admissions when we got to medical school. And she went out of her way to recruit not just a diverse class, but a just an amazing class. I have some amazing classmates entering class of 2001, Duke University, graduating class of 2005. Some of them graduated a little later because they did a little extra. We have some amazing classmates. And at Duke is where I first became exposed to anesthesiology. So I actually was going along thinking I was going to do cardiology or internal medicine. Again, that's what I was familiar with because my father's internal medicine. And 
I didn't love it. You know, like I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I was like, I want to do something I'm going to love. And I just happened to interact with a physician at an, a student national medical association conference. So I was attending an SNMA conference and I ran into this black female physician who loved what she did. You could just tell. And I was like, what do you do? I want to do what you do. Cause she's like fit. She gets out and goes to the gym. She loves what she does at work. And I was like, I want to be like you when I grow up, what do you do? And she's like, I'm an anesthesiologist girl. You need to come over here. I was like, okay, bet. So I changed my research project. I had already set up for a research project with internal medicine because in our third year at Duke, we do a year of research. I'd already set up my internal medicine research project. And I was like, told my advisor, I was like, I need to switch to an anesthesia research project because I want to do anesthesia. And so I was privileged to work with Dr. Steve Klein, who is at that time one of, I think he may still be there, but he was my mentor for my research here in regional anesthesia. And so I got exposure to anesthesia and regional But then in terms of getting exposed to chronic pain, one of the other advantages of the Duke system is that at the time we still had to do a continuity clinic. So even though we were doing a year of research, they wanted us to be involved in a continuity clinic to maintain our clinical skills. So I was thinking, well, what can I do that is a continuity clinic and still be within the anesthesia realm? And so chronic pain came up. And that's where I met my other mentor, Dr. Diane Scott, who was another amazing woman, female physician, loved what she did. Another minority that was, you know, just, I won't say the words, but she was, you know, taking names. You can fill in the, you can fill in the first part. Right. And um, it's a family show after all. Yes, exactly. So (laughs) she was great. She really inspired me to, to do what I loved. Right. And there is where I saw the importance of, I saw what we could do for patients as chronic pain physicians. I saw how we could use our skills, our anesthesia skills, our knowledge of physiology, pharmacology, our ability to be technically proficient at procedures to really change people's lives. And I was hooked from then on, I knew I needed to do pain. And so Dr. Scott, that interaction was pre-residency still? No, that was actually in medical. Yeah, it was pre-residency. Exactly. Okay. It was pre-residency. Yeah. Got it. So you had, you had the whole thing kind of mapped out before you even finished medical school. I knew when I, when I, now, when I decided to do, when I decided to, so I switched to anesthesia about end of my second year before I started my third year. And then in my third year, I started the anesthesia interest group at Duke. So they didn't have one before. And I realized before that we only had like three days of anesthesia at the beginning of our surgery rotation. So we really didn't get exposure to it. And I realized people are missing out. This field is awesome. I need to let more people know about this. How can we do this? And so I started the interest group at Duke and we, we did, you know, the vascular workshops, the coming in and vascular access workshops, the airway workshops, the coming in and learning about anesthesia. We saw our anesthesia applications really tick up after we did that, but it's because the field is so awesome. Like it's great. And then, you know, you did undergrad business. You felt like doing more business work at some point was going to be worth your time. So tell, tell me about that decision, kind of how it came about. So, well, actually it took a little while. So I had the opportunity to do an MD and MBA combined degree at Duke. And something I was like, I want to get some more experience before I do an MBA. I want to be able to apply real life experience to my MBA. So I actually finished my anesthesia residency. I went to anesthesia residency at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And then we haven't even talked about fellowship. We're going to have to come back to that. So I did my fellowship went out in private practice. The first job out of private practice I started was an anesthesia. Um, it was hospital-based anesthesia. And I started the clinic, the hospital-based clinic from scratch. First job out of fellowship. Then I went into private practice and I saw a small 
private practice group and then a larger private practice group. And within all of those things, I saw components of the business that I, number one, wanted to understand better, and number two, wanted to be able to affect change with. And so what I realized about medicine and about highly analytical, highly intelligent people is that if you want to affect change, you have to have a rationale that you can present. And what I realized I was missing was I knew what I wanted to do it. I knew the end result I was looking for, but I was missing how to connect point A to point D. I was missing that rationale piece. And that's the way you think. And that's when I said, I need to go back and get my MBA because I want to be able to not just make the decisions, make the recommendations, but I want to have a rationale, a backing for why these, why I need to think this way. And also I want to be able to find out the information that I may not already know. So for example, you don't know what you don't know, but you can know where to find it sometimes, you know what I mean? And so one of the biggest things my MBA has taught me is how to figure out number one, what's the missing information that we need to find. And number two, how to find it, whether it is coordinating with networking with your colleagues, whether it is researching a certain amount of information, whether it is running an Excel spreadsheet and doing the analysis from scratch. Like I can do all of those things now because of the foundation we laid with my MBA. Did you find when you were finishing fellowship and looking at that first and second job opportunity that you were more or less equipped to know what you were getting into? Or was it kind of like, I'm going to just close my eyes, take a leap of faith and hope that I land somewhere I want to be? That's a very good question. So I will tell you that during my fellowship at Carolina's Pain Institute, which is Wake, which was affiliated with Wake Forest at the time, was one of the best things I could have done both for equipping me for the future because it was a hybrid and is a hybrid private practice academic setting where we got exposed to the research, we got exposed to the clinical work, we also got exposed to the business of medicine. So I had connections, I was able to reach back out and talk to our billers or coders or practice managers and so on when I was starting to practice and figuring out what I needed. So one thing I will tell your fellows that are listening is to make and maintain connections with the administrative staff of your fellowship location. Okay, because you're there to learn clinical medicine, but you're also there to learn the business of medicine. And so if you can get time and connect with your practice administrators, your schedulers, your prior authorization folks, your billers and coders, do not lose this opportunity and just think your head just needs to be in a book and you just need to be in an exam room or have a needle in your hand. Because when you get out into practice, you need to understand what's going on. So when I left and I started this practice, I understood what was necessary in terms of the intake forms, the prior authorizations, the documentation, the CPT coding, and all of that from my experience in my fellowship. Had I gone through fellowship and not paid attention to those things, I would not have been as equipped as I would be was to start a practice right out of fellowship. Yeah, I've heard that about Wake Forest is that it uh, is unusually adept at training pain physicians for the real world out there. If you're going to go to private practice, you have a lot of the groundwork laid. Yeah, that was Carolina's Pain Institute. That was where those Dr. Raup, Dr. Gilmore, Dr. North, Dr. Caporal is there now. All of those docs, plus the entire system that they have set up with the Center for Clinical Research and so on, really well prepared us to go out into the real world and practice medicine and to practice, honestly, private practice and academics, because you see my path has kind of gone full circle from solo hospital-based through small private practice to large private practice, now back to academics. So I've done the gamut. Yeah. What drew you back to the academy after the MBA? So academics, so even when I was in private practice, I was still presenting posters at NANS and ASRA. 
I was still teaching, like doing grand rounds and stuff for the, for the communities and so on, you know, and the hospital settings. I love to teach. I think that's really what brought me back was loving to teach. And when University of Tennessee Medical Center and the University of Anesthesiologists, which is the Department of Anesthesia that I work with, that I work for, when they were converting their previous more like it was a interventional block clinic kind of practice to a more comprehensive unit, they were looking for a medical director that would allow them to make that transition. So I was recommended by a colleague and it was a it was a great fit. It's it's been great to be here. One item from the past I want to ask about, and then I want to hear more about what you're up to now. You just mentioned in passing, starting a hospital pain clinic from scratch. Tell me about the circumstances surrounding that. And how did you, you know, you said like learning the places to go to get the information that you need. I'm sure there was probably a lot of that involved. So tell us that story. Sure. So when I started out, I was recruited for an anesthesia position. That was the position that was available, but I was coming out of a pain fellowship. And I said, you know, I really want to offer this pain clinic to the community. We don't have, there was no pain provider at the time in the entire community. So they'd have to go um, to Pittsburgh. And so I recognized that the first thing I need to do is figure out kind of what it was I wanted to offer. What were my hours going to be in terms of what capacity was I going to have to see patients? A lot of it because of being in anesthesia, some of it was post-call days and so on, do not recommend, recommend having dedicated days. You first thing you figure out is what is my capacity? How many patients am I going to be able to see? And can I serve them well? Do I have the support needed to be able to see the patient, but also do the procedure? So we had to make sure our procedure rooms were set up to allow us to do our procedures appropriately. So once we identified the patients, we could do them. What are the prior authorization and documentation requirements? This was prior to EMR. So all my stuff was on paper. I was dictating or transcribing or typing or something. I don't remember. I think it was dictation transcription or something like that. So what are the documentation requirements to allow us to get this done? What are the marketing requirements? How do I get my name out there? Do I collaborate with industry to kind of meet people? Do I do lunches? How do I get the website built? How do I do all of these things? These are all important components. And so at the time, we had really good industry collaboration that could help with some of that practice management building and so on. So I had I, I had that advantage, too, of being able to work with practice management kind of resource builders or, or stuff like that, too to get the information and the and the things that I needed. But it really also had to do with demonstrating the value to the patients and demonstrating value to the hospitals. So demonstrating value to the patients by getting them the care and the results and the outcomes that they needed and demonstrating value to the hospital by being you know, a profitable entity where you are running lean, but providing good, excellent clinical outcomes. When you said industry collaboration to get those practice management connections, can you be more specific like, who did you talk to and what were, what was their role and how did they get you connected and who did they connect you to? At the time, I think I think things have changed now with industry, but at the time there were some spinal cord stimulator companies that also would have like almost divisions designed to help your fellows get up and running. And so they would have people who are familiar with setting up a practice and so on. It's not that they were doing the work. I'm not sure what the regulatory kind of recommendation was at the time everything was appropriate. So it was something we could use. I'm not sure why it went away because honestly, it's an excellent service. I wish more fellows had access to it, but there's stuff behind the scenes that I don't know about. So, but they would, you know, things like, here are some examples of things you might want to put on a website, or here are some examples of paperwork you may want, or things like that, like just kind of packets, marketing materials, things like that, that might be templated, and then you could figure it out. Now, these are still things that you can get on your own. You can go to 
Vistaprint, for example, and they have just, there's some other design companies you can go online. So let's not say Vistaprint, let's say any of the other graphic design companies online, there's like a bunch of them where you can get a logo design and you can look at marketing materials you get in the mail and figure out what you want to put on your marketing materials and things like that. So you did the MBA, you're now at UT. Tell us about the, the targeted pain treatment program, the conference you mentioned. Tell us, tell us about how that has evolved. Sure. So targeted pain treatment is actually a concept that I came up with starting in fellowship. It was a way that I made sure that I, would, I was accurately treating and identifying all of the causes of chronic pain. And it really started with the targeted treatment component or the multimodal treatment component. So I use the acronym MIPS, which is not the whole Medicare payment thing, because I came up with it first. It was like minimally invasive pituitary surgery, then my MIPS, then Medicare, just so it clear. Okay. So medications, interventions, physical therapy, psychosocial. Literally, I came up with this when I was I was standing in the, I think I was either in the blue clinic or the green clinic. The CPI alumni will know exactly what I'm talking about between the blue and the green clinic. It's, but I was in one of those clinics and I was dealing with a particularly complicated patient. And I was trying to figure out what can I do to make sure that I'm not missing what I need to do for this patient? I said, I need to make sure that I'm addressing any medication changes they needed, any interventions they might need, any physical therapy they need. And it's like, oh, MIPS, right? And so then I said, okay, from then on, every single patient, every single practice I've been to, I have used MIPS as my treatment plan. So what is the physiologic cause of pain that they're dealing with? Medications treat the physiologic cause, whether it is a neuropathic pain for which we use gabapentin, whether it is a muscle spasm for which we're using a muscle relaxer, whether it is a nociceptive pain that needs a short course of opioids because everything else has been tried, medications treat the physiologic cause of pain. Then our interventions, which is what we're familiar with and we do a lot of, treat the anatomic cause of pain. And then there are other things that I've built on from that. So physical therapy treats the functional associated, the functional limitations associated with pain. And psychosocial treatment, when indicated, can be instrumental for helping our patients improve their function. It's kind of like, I describe to patients, it's kind of like, you're a vehicle going down the road and you've got four tires and each of those tires represent a different cause of pain, physiologic, anatomic, functional, psychosocial. And if you've got one flat tire, physiologic, and you put medication on it, that's your treatment for your physiologic cause of pain. But if you've got three flat tires and you only use medication, you still have two flat tires. So your function is still limited, which is why the core tenets of targeted pain treatment are so important. The first is to accurately diagnose the cause of pain, figure out which tires are flat. The second is to treat the source, not the score. So put the appropriate air in the appropriate tire, whether it's medications, interventions, physical therapy, psychosocial. And the third is to focus on function. If you've just got four flat tires, you can't just put air in one of them. You've got to, you've got to inflate all four. And that is what has allowed us to really change patients' lives is because because of that focus on function, because of that focus on getting back to doing what they want to do, we are able to really improve their lives. So with that, targeted pain treatment has really developed over time, has been as I've continued to distill what it is that I do when I'm practicing clinically into something that I can teach others. That's how the targeted pain treatment course and conference and toolkit and all of these other things that I've produced have come out. What's the biggest challenge that you faced when you went from this thing that you put on a sticky note in between the green and the blue clinic to trying to get it to a place where it's you're scalably educating many clinicians at once? You know what? It has actually, I've developed it over time, over years. So each, every year as I am practicing, 
I find a way to distill more and more and more. It's like you're purifying something, if you know what I'm saying. Like you're you're figuring out, okay, oh, this is a component. Oh, this is a component. It's like you take a perfume, and I don't know, I don't know how much you know about making perfumes, but there are multiple different scents that go into a perfume, right? And so you just know at the end that this smells really good, right? But there are very precise scientific you know, amounts of X, Y, Z component that go into it. And so you can come out with a perfume at the end, but if you need to teach somebody how to make that particular scent, you've got to go all the way back to what are the different components that go into it. So I may have had just from my clinical education and all of this knowledge and experience, I may be able to produce a perfume, but if I wanted to teach others how to make the same perfume, I would have to go back and figure out, okay, we need about this much of this and this much of that. And so over the years, I have distilled the different components of targeted pain treatment. And that's what I've put into the TPT toolkit, which is a free toolkit available to anyone who is interested in downloading it. They can go to tpt-toolkit.com and they can find resources in terms of the flat tire analogy I, I, I described, some of the explanations of what targeted pain treatment actually is and tools that can help them think through some of these things so that they can implement it for their own patients. They don't have to be pain specialists. It can be primary care providers. It can be cardiologists. It can be orthopedic surgeons, whomever can use these tools for their patients that are in front of them. Awesome. So for our listeners, if you go to apmsuccess.com slash 156 for episode 156, the links that Dr. Vanderpool is referring to, as well as some other resources that she has already sent me, we're going to post all that stuff there in the show notes so you can access it all there easily. For that first conference, I'm curious, the, doing the first of the thing is always this moment of like, you're putting yourself out there. What if you you know, do all the marketing and rent the space yes. and all that, and then nobody shows up? So can you right. tell me like about oh how that goodness. went for you? So- I, I chuckled for a little bit when you asked me that question, because when I first came with the idea to my chair and to our CEO, and I said, I want us to do a conference. And they were like, oh, well, maybe we'll get like, you know, 50, 10. I think they were saying we could probably get 10 to 25 people to show up. Right. And our first conference, we had probably close to 200 people. And so we were, and this is where I'm talking about the buy-in of the institution. So the University of Tennessee Medical Center recognizes how important this education is for all of their clinicians. And so they actually made it a preferred or a dedicated course for all of their employed PCPs, which was huge because that allowed us to drive a broad audience to hear the information all at once and to be able to ask the questions. And then each year thereafter, we have had a a similar level of commitment and communication. The COVID years were hard. Last year and this year, the, the attendance Last year, the attendance was actually pretty good. This year, the attendance dropped off some, but next year, God's willing, we'll be live and in person again in Knoxville. And I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone again and kind of communicating that, especially since it'll be our fifth year of doing it. Wow. Awesome. You mentioned a patient outreach program that you're really excited about. Tell me a little bit about that. This actually started off from a patient, um, a grateful patient made a pretty substantial donation to the medical center. And Uh, in my name, for us to further the mission of targeted pain treatment. So we were able to create a targeted pain treatment outreach and education fund through which I was saying, I want to get the word out to patients. I want to give them hope so that we can get them up to speed and and get them access to the care that they need. So we started off with a webinar, just a patient webinar, just to educate them about what targeted pain treatment was. And then another one about interventions. Well, in that same patient, they made another hefty donation. We now have this fund of money that 
over the course of the next amount of time, we are hopeful to be able to spread the word to get word out to patients. So what we're doing right now is a documentary, which is actually being filmed by a professional production company, Big Slate Media, who is doing an amazing job of getting the stories of some very key patients out there. So we have the patient interviews, we have interviews with the leadership and staff of the medical center, we have interviews with myself, and our goal is to really get this documentary on the likes of Netflix or Discovery or something along those lines that will allow us to actually get the word out to more people. So we're really privileged and blessed and honored to be able to partner with the medical center to do that, with Big Slate Media, with Ackerman PR, who's helping us with some of the, the, the production and marketing with UT Marketing Department, UT Medical Center Marketing Department to really get this vision onto the, the screen. My goal is to get onto the big screen, honestly. Something that's really striking to me about your story is th- just the broad influence that that you're exerting. Really, you know, it's you've, you've obviously worked very hard to put the tools in the toolbox to serve patients very well, to think critically about systems by doing the MBA and to build these connections in different institutions, both with industry and in your time in academics, such that you've got this conference, you've got this, you know, movie that's being made. I'm curious if you had to, you know, you could listen to this as a, another physician out there and think, I would love to have that kind of impact, but it's, you know, when you were uh, an MS4 thinking about, okay, I think I want to do anesthesiology and I probably want to do pain too. You obviously couldn't have foreseen all of these specific pretty meaningful ways that you're going to impact the society pain management. So for others who want to work hard to be able to replicate your kind of impact, what kind of advice might you offer to folks who think I want to, I love serving patients, obviously, but I want to have broader reach and I want to impact my community and I want to impact my specialty. And I want to put the tools in the toolbox in order to position myself to be able to do that. What should they be thinking about right now? I think one of the biggest things that has helped me is to remain authentic. And authenticity for me means being true to my faith, being true to who I am and who I want to be as a person, and listening to those cues that I might get. Like I said, I'm standing there in Blue or the Green Clinic, can't remember which one it is, but I'm standing there and I get this ding, 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 MIPS, and I write it down and I pay attention to it. So it's paying attention to those things, but still being authentic the whole time. Because one thing that, it, that patients will say about me, I think, is that I am empathetic, but I'm authentic. So I'll come in and they may have to wait on me a little bit because I'm running behind because I'm talking to the next, the previous patient about whatever they need me to talk about. But when I get there, I'm all into them and I am authentically wanting them to achieve their goals. And so I think the most important thing is authenticity. The next thing is going to be listening to your, I don't want to say intuition, but whatever it is that speaks to you, that guides you, whether it could be your intuition, your faith, whatever, listening to that inner voice. I think everybody recognizes the inner voice. Honing and listening to that inner voice while being authentic will guide you many, many times in the direction you need to go. It might be a circuitous path. If you'd asked me, When I was in medical school, if I would be at a medical center doing a documentary, no, I would have no clue. But because I have been true to those little nudges that have prompted me to say, I'm going to do this. Am I going to, I'm going to, I'm going to create this, this, 
this this educational package that allows us to spread the word. And I'm not doing this. I'm doing this because I want and doing it for the right reasons, right? So I'm doing it because I want other patients and other clinicians to have access to this treatment. I think you get rewarded for those things. You're authentic. You listen to your inner voice. You do it for the right reasons. You're going to be rewarded for those things. That doesn't mean that you should not be 100% ambitious. It does not mean that you should not aim to generate revenue and make a good living for your family and all of those things. Please do all of those things that allow you to be at peace and successful and all of that. But listen, I mean, we have some colleagues out there on social media who are doing some great things, starting pain urgent cares or bilingual you know, facilities or, or whatever it might be. And it's about identifying, meeting a need, but doing it authentically. Yeah. And I think to piggyback on that, the, whenever the, you're sort of leading with your heart, there are times at which it's unclear whether this will ever have any economic return. <laughs> um, but, it, but being passionate about what you're doing allows you to see that through to a point where hopefully, yeah, I mean, maybe you'll win the next Academy Award for the you know, documentary or whatever, when they get picked mean, up by you, Netflix. Hold it out. I'll find a dress. I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but it's the, it's the drive that you have for the space and for the patients and for your work that uh, allows you to get to that point. So Dr. Vanderpool, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for joining us on APM success. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to connecting with the audience. They can connect with me online, offline, um, S Vanderpool MD at, I need both Twitter and LinkedIn. Awesome. We'll throw that in the show notes as well. APMSuccess.com slash 156. Get in touch with Dr. Vanderpool. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Take care. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to APMSuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.